Welcome to Graphic Details, the podcast that discusses comics and graphic novels. We wanted to create a podcast where we could discuss our mutual love of graphic novels and share that with the world. As we are at SOAS, we want to have a global focus in this podcast, exploring graphic novels from Asia and Africa. Throughout the series, we will look at themes such as post-colonialism, gender and race. I'm Indigo. I study history and politics here at SOAS. I'm a bit of a podcast addict, and I came up with the idea for graphic details while searching for podcasts discussing comics and graphic novels and coming up short. Like a lot of people, I got into graphic novels through manga. I remember watching Studio Ghibli movies and wanting to find more stuff like it. Then, one fateful day in Waterstones, I found a small shelf full of Sailor Moon and Death Note books. Being a 12-year-old edgelord, I naturally chose the first volume of Death Note and read it in a day, embracing the morbidity. A couple of years later, when I was camping with friends, someone lent me a copy of Persepolis, and from then on, I was hooked. Nowadays, as a uni student, I think the main draw of graphic novels is how easy to read and digestible they are. I'm Aisha, and I'm a third-year English student here at SOS. I was really interested in getting back into podcasts because I've helped create a few in the past, but they have all been about young adult literature books, and since I've outgrown that genre, when I came across Indigo's Graphic Details podcast, I knew it was something I wanted to take part in. And just as Indigo said, because I have a sea of readings to get through, for uni the only way I can read for pleasure is by reading graphic novels because they're so easy to get through. I was actually introduced to Persepolis by my psychology teacher back in year 12 and I remember reading both books in one day because it has such a gripping storyline. I felt connected to the protagonist and was disappointed when there wasn't a third book continuing her story and that's why I'm really excited to look deeper into the graphic novel today and discuss some of the issues outlined within it. My name is Gaia I'm in my third year. I'm studying social anthropology and development studies. I first came across graphic novels when I was quite young and I grew up on the Marvel and DC comics. And at that age, as a child, your imagination is quite fertile. I really appreciated the way that the story merged so effectively with the visual aids to give it a sense of dynamism, which was at that time before the Marvel movies today, you really didn't get any other medium. So growing up, I really appreciated and enjoyed reading these comics. You would turn the page and then suddenly there's like a big, beautiful double spread with a lot of action going on. And yeah, just really appreciated the artistic merit of the graphic novel. I think that was my introduction in my beginning but as you grow older you then branch out into other stories some of them maybe more political some of them maybe more personal and I've just grown to really appreciate what the medium of graphic novels can contribute in constructing a story. written by Marjan Zatrapi, was originally published as four volumes. Book one was called Persepolis, the story of a childhood, which came out in two parts, in 2000 and 2001, respectively. And Persepolis, the story of a return, also came out in two parts and were published in 2002 and 2003. Originally written in French, it has since been translated into English, among other languages, and is well known throughout the world. The intelligent and outspoken child of radical Marxists and the great-granddaughter of Iran's last emperor, Satrapi bears witness to a childhood uniquely entwined with the history of her country. Persepolis paints an unforgettable portrait of daily life in Iran and of the bewildering contradictions between home life and public life. This is a beautiful and intimate story full of tragedy and humour, raw, honest and incredibly illuminating. We've chosen Persepolis for our first episode because it is the first thing that comes to many people's minds when you say graphic novel. It's often a gateway for young people into more political writing. At least it was for me. 
Reading Persepolis was my first taste of a world outside my own. Learning of the Iranian Revolution and subsequent regime was fascinating and heartbreaking. I've since read the book four or five times, and Margie, the autobiography's protagonist, feels like an old friend. In November, I was in a coach crash, and I scrambled for a few of my possessions in the wreckage. I grabbed my laptop, which had miraculously survived, despite being open on my lap when the crash happened, and a bag which had my passport, phone, and Persepolis in it. When I was lying awake, alone in a strange French hospital, I opened up Persepolis and it felt a little better. With Margie by my side, I was a little less lonely. The publication of Persepolis is part of the resurgence of the graphic novel as an experiment of the literary form and is also part of a broader post-colonial and feminist intervention. In this section, I want to discuss the themes of freedom and the representation of the Islamic faith in the novel. Satrapi's autobiographical realist novel detailed the events that have taken place in Iran, and therefore it was almost a source of anxiety for the early readers of the novel. Satrapi's writing is ironic and satirical, and she is challenging the authoritative regime at the time, which suggests a level of liberalism and open-mindedness in people's everyday lives in Iran. But despite there being a regime that was trying to micromanage their lives, the resistance that Margie's character shows could be represented as a form of freedom. However, the way in which she represents the veil in particular can be seen as problematic. Satrapi is just one individual living in a society where not many people wore the veil and once the authoritarian regime was established, it became mandatory for women to cover themselves. Therefore, when the protagonist comes back from Europe, she is forced to wear the veil again and the veil is almost represented as a symbol of the regime's oppression rather than an expression of the Islamic faith. Considering Satrapi was writing for a Frank fun audience, whom typically saw the veil as a negative thing anyway. Her singular perspective has been seen as a way to represent Islam as being a radical religion when of course this really isn't the case. Satrapi is only representing her version of liberty which doesn't include the veil, which is completely fair, but it is problematic when the veil is represented as something that limits your freedom. Yeah, I think we can really tell Aisha's an English student. (laughs) (laughs) She's got her analysis in there, which is really interesting. I definitely agree with the last point. I think feminism has definitely come on a bit from 2000, 2002, when this was written. At least at SOAS, we don't see the veil as necessarily a symbol of women's oppression. Exactly. (laughs) But yeah, I do remember when I was reading it, it really impacted me in that kind of like white feminism way. Yeah. (laughs) which obviously is problematic. The scene where she comes back from Europe and she has to put the veil on in the airport and she hasn't put it on correctly and it's the first reminder of the regime's omnipresence. I think that is, for me, what makes the veil the symbol of oppression in the book as well. When she's a child and then she has to go to school and they all have to wear the veil, what she really associates with the regime. But yeah, it's very interesting. I also love at the start of the book when they go to school and they're all playing with the veil and like using (laughs) it as like capes and horse riding, all this kind of of stuff I find it quite funny it kind of showed the innocence that the children have because it's not really their conscious decision for them to wear the veil to them it's just something that they have to do with no explanation whereas now it's almost like you have to take the decision to wear the veil rather than someone imposing that upon you at least here anyway in the UK on the idea of it being a choice there's really interesting ethnography by anthropologist Sabah Mahmood talking about the politics of piety and what the veil means in Egypt through her interview with Muslim women and they point to the idea that the veil is a choice but it's also only the first step in a lifelong choice. She talks about the woman's fears that they are not pious enough 
and that the veil in this context at least is a declaration of religious faith but that's only the first step because their concerns are to cultivate an interior state of piety that follows after one decides to put the veil on so i think it's it's quite interesting in what it illuminates about what we think about the veil and how it's a much more complex decision than what the western narrative would have it be it's also interesting how Sir Trapp is almost playing on the idea that everyone who wears the veil looks the same because there's that one scene where they're in the classroom and they're all wearing the scarf and they all look identical. Yeah. So I think in a way she's kind of being ironic, like trying to show that this is what the West sees as Islam and uh, and this is what they see of the Islamic faith and stuff. So she is being ironic in that sense where that can be analysed differently depending on the audiences and all that. So in a sense, she can be seen as reinforcing that Islamic stereotype, which can be kind of problematic, but yeah. What I really liked with her critique of the veil in the introduction, she's talking about Iran and how it's discussed in the media. And she says, This old and great civilization has been discussed mostly in connection with fundamentalism, fanaticism and terrorism. As an Iranian who has lived more than half my life in Iran, I know that this image is far from the truth. This is why writing Persepolis was so important to me. I believe that an entire nation should not be judged by the wrongdoings of a few extremists. I also want those Iranians who lost their lives in prisons defending freedom, who died in the war against Iraq, who suffered under various repressive regimes or were forced to leave their families and flee their homeland to be forgotten. One can forgive, but one should never forget. And that's the end of her introduction to the book. I feel like there's two aspects to her representation of the veil, which is obviously she's trying to undermine the idea that the West has of Iran because a lot of people just felt like everyone supported the regime and she wants to show that it's made up of people like me, you know, (laughs) humanised people a bit. Mm -hmm. And I guess from her background, she's very middle class, intellectual. Many people didn't like the veil. Exactly. That's true. So you can kind of see like where she's coming from, but it's still a bit judgmental of people who choose to wear the veil. (laughs) And like she should be able to have that freedom of speech and like I'm not obviously not denying that I guess the problematic part is that because she's such a well-known Iranian author she's almost seen as representing such a huge audience and it shouldn't be like that not one author should not have the responsibility of representing an entire audience like that or an entire religion or an entire country or anything but obviously not a lot of people see it like that and also considering in this day and age like I have a lot of friends who wear the veil it's their personal choice rather than a authoritative regime telling them to wear it or their parents telling them to wear it or anything like that. To them, it's a conscious decision that they've made and that is the case for a lot of people. I'm not denying the fact that people have been forced to wear the veil in the past, of course. But I think that's what makes this sort of discussion so sensitive because it's not black or white. It's difficult to make a decision in regards to something like this. Yeah. On the topic of ethnographies and anthropology, do you also want to talk about liminality as well? Yeah, yeah. So basically, liminality can be understood as sort of a period of in-betweenness, essentially. It marks a transitional phase between two epochs or two structures. So, for example, if you were transitioning from childhood to adulthood, you would have a liminal phase in between. Or if you're transitioning from one year to the next, you would have a liminal phase in between. I think as a Western educated Iranian grants her this liminal perspective in which a third space emerges from Iran and the West, which I think is quite prominent in her text. Uh, There's this one quote in the book where she says, I was nothing. I was a Westerner in Iran, 
and an Iranian in the West. I had no identity. The idea of her being in between these two spaces grants her this quite illuminating perspective. Yeah, it's also interesting that you take the liminal phase of her being both Western and Iranian. But when you were talking about it, I was also thinking the book really covers the liminal phase of adolescence and being a teenager and growing up. So I guess those two liminalities coinciding make a profound narrative, which I really enjoyed. Just to add to that, if we remove the whole religious context from the book, it's just interesting to think about it because it is essentially just the story of a young girl growing up, isn't it? And I think it's just the context of the veil and the context of Iran that really complicates that. And I think it is important to just strip back all of that and also just focus on how this is literally just one story of a young girl. And it is super interesting, like everything that she went through, all the different phases of her life stuff. And I think that's really what sets this graphic novel apart from all the others that I've read. That makes it really relatable to everyone. It's not that it only appeals to people who have lived in similar places or similar situations. I read it, I guess, when I was about 14 and I've reread it about five times or something since then. And yeah, it's very relatable because more than anything, it's about growing up. And I think she also infuses the book with a great deal of honesty and vulnerability. She expresses and she documents how she was prone to fads of the time, like punk culture. She had these desires, which sometimes could be quite petty in in relation to these broader political structures. Yeah, and I think that vulnerability is quite refreshing. Just like a funny note, when I was about 14 or 15, me and my friend, who I now live with actually, Alice, we were like, oh yeah, we're diehard punks. We're going to be punks forever. We love the Sex Pistols and we started our own band, even though neither of us can play instruments, <laughs> which is very like the spirit of punk, I guess. But it was very funny. <clears throat> Looking back now, it's very embarrassing. Yeah. But everyone goes through these phases where you think, yeah, I, I'm going to be like this forever. This is my true <laughs> calling or whatever, which I find quite fun. What did you like about the book? It's not really a certain section of the book that I like. I think one aspect of it that I do like is her relationship with her parents. Despite living in such an authoritarian regime and stuff, her parents are always there, like a sense of comfort. They're not telling her to do something a certain way, especially her mum, and that I think is really important. It's also quite radical for her to represent parents like that because there's always this stereotypical concept when it comes to parents, them being super strict and wanting things to go a certain way. But I think Margie's parents are definitely different in the sense that they're always supportive of her no matter what she does and I think that's always comforting for a reader that's why I really liked her relationship with her parents yeah and I really love the character of the grandmother as well she's funny yeah she's (laughs) funny and she's also a bit of a moral guide for Margie that's the scene where She's wearing lipstick and she sees some officers coming. So she points to a random man on the street and says, oh, he harassed me. And then obviously he gets taken to prison and she tells the grandma as if it's a joke. And then the grandma gets very angry. And so she brings her to her senses. And also I quite liked the fact that she describes how she puts her breasts in cold water every night to keep them perky. (laughs) And I'm wondering whether I should try that. as a technique. (laughs) I also really like the relationship with the parents. There's something to be said about class position. Their family is urban, relatively wealthy, they're middle class, they're western educated kind of family and that's not representative of all of Iran. I think having sort of said that, there is still a great deal of tenderness 
between the parents and the grandma, like you mentioned. And it does a really good job of humanizing these relationships, documenting their struggles between themselves, but also against the regime and how they, as a family, come to face these issues with tenderness and, and humor, which I think is one of the better aspects of the book. What you said about tackling these issues with humor, I think that's really relatable. I mean, at least with my family, the first thing we do when something terrible happens is, I guess, make a joke yeah. about it. Because if you can't laugh, then you're just going to cry. So you might as well approach life with a bit of humor and get through it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to my co-presenters lovely Aisha and Gaia. You've been listening to me, Indigo. Join us next time where we'll be reviewing Slum Wolf by Tadao Tasugi. It's a collection of short graphic stories by a Japanese manga master from the 60s and 70s. 